where we have the beginning of the church. We started with Pentecost, which is the birth of the church, and then we've spent maybe a couple of months in uh, chapter 2 that uh, we looked at various activities that uh, were occurring. And uh, these are functions or activities that uh, really are needed in every church. Uh, They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. They devoted themselves to fellowship. They broke bread. They prayed. And they praised the Lord together. And so that we talked about worship related to that. And then uh, the last verse, 47, was about outreach because the Lord was adding to their number daily. And, uh, well, we're skipping over right now to uh, chapter 6. And uh, the church is still doing very well. The Word is being taught. The Gospel is proclaimed. Fellowship is close. And I really like that. And it is growing in numbers. Verse verse 1 says that when the number of disciples were increasing, and yet there is a complaint. The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews. Complaint. Some tension, obviously. Maybe the beginning of conflict. And you might say, well, in the church? Really? Have you ever heard of that before? Complaint? Conflict? In the church? (laughs) Sometimes especially in the church, okay? There's a cute little story about a father who came home from work one day and found his daughter and her playmates in a heated quarrel. He began to scold her, but she explained innocently, oh, we're just playing church. Ah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we know. We know all about it that, that happens in church. And, uh, you know, one explanation is that church is about faith, and faith is about things we hold deeply, right? And uh, I think that's why, of course, we take these things so seriously, and sometimes the disagreement goes beyond the very meaning of it all, of course. But what, were, what are we to make of this? These common instances of conflict. Is it one mark against what is otherwise a healthy church? Or is it part of what it means to be healthy? You know, if, it's, if there's health there, maybe there's going to be the odd complaint. Is it something that has nothing to do, not a marker one way or the other about health, the kind of thing that happens from time to time in a church, whether the church is healthy or not? just like our physical health. Just because we have one physical problem doesn't mean that overall we are sick. Or maybe, and I think we see that here, maybe it is especially likely when a church is growing. It says here that the number of disciples was increasing, and then these particular ones complained Uh, As newer people come into a church, they each bring certain expectations and things get more complicated. And uh, that's often, I think, the context of complaint. 
The text here doesn't say anything here about it being either good or bad, or it doesn't say anything about it being avoidable or inevitable. It's simply, and I would say in a very neutral way, unbiased way, describes the reality of what was happening and then how the leadership dealt with it. And that's what we're looking at today. We're going to look at the reality of the complaint. It was there. And then we're going to look at the response of the leadership in dealing with it. But uh, regarding the reality where we begin, what exactly is going on here? Well, you have two quite different groups of people in the church. There are those Jews of local origin. Their primary tongue was Aramaic. They were Jewish in outlook. And then you had those who had been scattered abroad. They had lived in different places. They, they were Jewish in origin, but they had lived elsewhere. And, uh, th and so their first language was, uh, was Greek. And their cultural outlook was also Grecian. Now they lived in Jerusalem and they had become Christians. They are the ones that are called here Hellenistic Jews. There's, they were Jews, they are Jews in origin, but they have this Greek culture and language uh, mixed in with them. And there would have been a pretty wide difference in the overall outlook among these two groups. And it could be that there was some tension between them already. It doesn't say that, but that's possible until something really brought the complaint to the surface. And... Uh, and uh, then the setting or the context is that they have a food distribution program in the church. And that is to provide for the necessities for poor widows. And that's what I was talking about earlier, broken people. And there's such an emphasis on taking care of such. Well, the complaint surfacing was over the equitable food distribution the Grecian ones, the Hellenistic ones, they complained that their widows were being overlooked in the food distribution. And they get the attention of the apostles, and I think that is uh, pretty significant in itself, that uh, the complaint came to, and perhaps it was brought directly to the twelve. That means that those who brought the complaint were heard, they were acknowledged. The apostles were not out of touch in their ivory towers. They didn't consider themselves too important to listen and to accept and to take wisdom from the complaint. You know, I think that in itself is pretty significant. After all, they were the undisputed leaders of the whole church. They had been with Jesus in the days of his flesh. They had literally been taught by him and then commissioned to pass on what he had taught them. But they listened. They cared. And they responded. Well, let's look at the response, the response of the leadership. And there are so many things about that response that is information and helpful for us, model for us, 
and uh, I, I think of the contrast, you know, how they, how they handled it and how perhaps people sometimes tend to handle it. I note that the problem was not trivialized, okay? Um, you know, you think you've got problems? Do you want to hear about my problems? There's no evidence that they looked down on it or saw it as, as, as trivial. Nor was it spiritualized. You know, we aren't praying enough. If we had prayed more, there wouldn't be this potential conflict. Even now, if we just pray about it, God will take care of it. No, they didn't spiritualize it. I'm sure they did pray. <laughs> but their prayer was not a substitute for their responsibility to deal with the problem. There was no assessment of blame. You know, whose fault is this anyway? Who blundered here? The complaint was acknowledged as a problem to be solved, not an opportunity to play the blame game. I guess the important thing at the bottom, they did not run away from the problem. You know, leave it alone, sweep it under the carpet, nobody will know. No, it was acknowledged. Someone has said, avoiding problems multiplies problems. I think that's probably true. Avoid problems, multiplies problems. And this uh, quotation here from somebody, where groups tend to suppress conflict, there will be an accumulation of feeling leading toward a potentially dangerous conflict. A group in conflict can be like a pressure cooker. As the heat increases, the pressure builds up. The more the pressure, the greater the explosion if the pressure is not abated. Hmm. No, they didn't avoid. They faced the problem. They faced it head on. And they were able to resolve it and only because they looked at it squarely were they able to resolve it. Well, how did, they do, how did they do that? Some principles here. A, they involved others. <laughs> it's not like they took it on themselves and said, you know, we, we'll, we'll handle it, don't worry about it. No, they involved others. They, they called together the whole assembly. And uh, then they delegated to the assembly. They said, you know, um, find seven men who are suitable for this to take care of it. Uh, not we'll handle it ourselves, but they delegated it. And yet, though they delegated it, they gave direction so that those they gave it to could, could, could handle it. In other words, they told them, how, this is how you are to handle this. Then they turned it over to them. They didn't do it all by themselves. They involved others. But then I noticed B, they found a solution that did not divert them from what was especially their responsibility. They said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. You know, it's not like they're saying this is not important, but, it's, but it must not divert us from our main responsibility. Uh, which was the teaching of the Word and prayer. 
But at the same time, they were not saying, this doesn't matter. No, they were saying, we have to care. In effect, we have to care for the physical needs. We have to have this mercy ministry. But at the same time, they were very firm about not being diverted away from what they had been called to. The ministry of the Word and its accompanying prayer. Both are essential in the church. We need the mercy ministry, but we need that careful teaching and prayer. In this case, which came from the apostles. After all, Jesus had taught them, and now they were passing on the teaching from the Lord, even as it says in in chapter 2. They devoted themselves, the congregation devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostle had a mission. They had a purpose. They had vision. And no complaint, no conflict, no unmet need would be allowed to divert them away from their ministry of the word and prayer. You know, that's kind of what a vision is about. We know what we're here for, okay? And there are all these other side issues we have to deal with, and they may be extremely important. But we know what our vision is, and we have to proceed with that. And yet we have to find a way to deal with these other things, and that's what they did. So they delegated with direction for a solution that would take care of the need, but would not divert them. Then see, those appointed to the distribution of the food ministry, they said, find seven men. We'll take care of this. But (laughs) they had to be well qualified. They had to be selected carefully. It says, would brothers and sisters choose seven men from among you who are, and then they gave the qualifications. He says, we will turn this responsibility over to them. I like that. They were prepared to let go of it, to turn it over to these others who would be appointed. But... The only reason that they'd be able to turn it over to some others is because they got qualified people to take care of it. The importance of quality, suitable kind of leaders. Well, what was to be the requirements? And basically there are three here. A, choose from among this whole group of people, thousands of people, A, choose people with a good reputation. Uh, This text here says people who are known. Choose among you who are known. Be full of spirit and wisdom. Other translations, people who are of good repute. Or RSV, people of good standing. Whoever you choose for such an important ministry must have a good reputation. Must be credible. And then secondly, they had to be spiritual people. People who are full, full of the Spirit. People who are walking with the Lord and that it shows that these are spiritual men. And then thirdly, they had to be men of wisdom. Practical wisdom. Um, not enough to be smart. Important to be practically smart, but not enough. They also had to be spiritual. Not enough to be spiritual. You could have the most spiritual people there, but if they don't have the proper smarts, competence, practical wisdom, 
And then these two together, if, if they'd been there for a while, they would have the endorsement of the crowd because these people were people of good reputation. Significantly, one of the men singled out here in the text is uh, he's been a, a Gentile convert to Judaism. In other words, he was a Gentile. And so that would mean that he is among the Hellenistic Jews. And as it turns out, all the names given here in the list were Greek names. Now that doesn't prove absolutely that they were all Hellenistic because Greek names, some of them were common. But there's a good indication, and if we know that at least one of them represented the very group that had brought the complaint. And there's wisdom in there, and there's grace there. Here's a group that has been neglected, so perhaps we should choose people from that group especially, because they know exactly what's been going on, and who could better help fill that gap. Well, the complaint was heard and dealt with. The church adjusted to the new reality, a new kind of structure, if you like, a well-organized, good way of doing church. And it says in verse 7 that it kept growing. The word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith problem was faced, it was dealt with, it was dealt with in a way that strengthened the total ministry of the church and especially buttressed, strengthened the mercy ministry, even as the apostles kept on, stuck to their priority, which was the teaching of the word and the prayer that goes with it. And this is a key passage in the book of Acts, and we consider the, as we consider the way that the church developed. And uh, traditionally, we have tended to look at this passage as the beginning of deacons, because the word uh, for deacons is uh, a couple times it occurs here in, in different formats. And so they're not called out here, but the words from the same root de uh, deacon are used. Important passage it speaks to the way to structure yourself as a church. And I want to I leave with you four things that we should be aware of, that we can sort of glean from uh, not just this text, but what this text describes. The narrative, the complaint, and the way that it was dealt with. And uh, first one is simply this. Be aware of this. Complaints. Even conflict is inevitable. At least where there's life, you know, there isn't any conflict, there aren't any complaints in the cemetery, but where there's life, where there's life, there's going to be, right? It's part of life. Be aware of that. Conflict is certain, and it can be either destructive or constructive. And here it was constructive because of the way it was handled. And uh, that is what's so helpful about this passage, seeing how it was handled. They took note of something. They learned from it. I guess they acknowledged that, yeah, something's overlooked here. They took care of it. And so that's the first thing. The second thing, note that the complaint here took place as the church grew. 
and required adjustment. I think that's important. You cannot expect to use the same routine in a different sized church. It just can't happen. And I'm of the firm opinion, you can take it for what it's worth, it's only my opinion, that one of the main reasons why churches tend to stay at a certain size is because they do church well for that size of people. A church will stay around 100 because we take good care of people, about 100. And if we lose a few, it's easy to bring more in, but uh, if we get beyond that, we're not handling it well. And someone who's had a lot of experience in, uh, in uh, church growth indicated to me that he had learned that for every 200 people, there had to be some, well, I think significant change. I think it's a lot less than that where you need change. But when a church grows, you have to change the way you do church in order to handle the people. And uh, that's what we had here. It was when the church was growing, they had to make an adjustment, and they did. They strengthened a certain ministry. Number three, good leadership and good leaders. Absolutely essential. Key to a healthy church is your leaders. Nature abhors a vacuum. And someone's going to lead, whether the person is suited or not. And so be careful about who is the influential gatekeeper and leader in the church. Here they were selective. Any good leadership means they must lead in ways that involves the congregation, for example. Good leadership, because our call is to a shared ministry. We sang about that, that we're all wanting to be servants of Jesus Christ. Good leaders recognize that, and they want to involve others like these did. Good leadership and good leaders, essential. And then fourthly, we are called to a holistic kind of ministry. Prayer and teaching and preaching of the Word has priority, but priority was also given to that ministry that here it was called the distribution of food. Though the apostles would not be sidetracked by having to wait on tables, they ensured that the needs of the poor continued to be met. What we might call the mercy ministry was considered a vital and essential part of their ministry. And this is emphasized in many different places in the Scriptures. One of them is Luke 4, verse 18, where Jesus initiates his public ministry. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. I think of James 1.27. It says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. <clears throat> look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. One more I chose, and that's in Galatians. Remember the Apostle Paul came late on the scene of the other apostles. He's the, you know, he's the only one who did not know Jesus in the days of Jesus' flesh. And uh, so it was natural and uh, proper that he should confer with the other apostles. 
And so in uh, Galatians, he, um, he, he reports on that and how that he did confer with the others and how they endorsed him. And then he makes this little comment. He says, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. Isn't that interesting? Here's the apostle who is so firm and clear in the presentation of the gospel and explaining the back, you know, how it all fits together. Reconciliation comes because Christ died for our sins. And he's the apostle who makes that so clear. And yet they insist on this. They asked that we should continue to remember the poor, but he's able to say with a good conscience, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. And so there's such an emphasis on the mercy ministry, holistic ministry, teaching of the word, the making of disciples, and yet the mercy ministries. We have here, I think, a structure that is good modeling for every church, really, where you have those who are set aside to be taking care of the practical, everyday, administrative ministry. And then they have the apostles, who are the ones who give direction, who give t- teaching, who, and who have final say in the, in the direction of the church. And I think that's a good model for us, where we can have a group, we can call them deacons, that really help with the administration, which can be so heavy. And I think that's become evident now with the conversations going on with the other church. Hey, there's a lot of work at organizing and putting things together. And I suggest that another group that we need is to have a group that is, we call them elders. They do help with the pastor in pastoral concerns and uh, keep themselves from being overly uh, sidetracked by the other. Good passage, good model, many good things to glean from it.